This is Talking Asset Management with KPMG. In today's episode, we focus on sovereign wealth funds and credit. Hello, and thank you for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. I'm Sam Riesenberg. Today, we're going to talk about sovereign wealth funds and credit. Joining me today are Eric Janowak, head of the U.S. Tax Desk for the Middle East and Deputy Global Lead of the Sovereign Wealth and Pension Fund Tax Network, and Dave Newenhouse, Global Lead for Asset Management Tax for KPMG, as well as the Institutional Investor Network, which includes sovereign wealth and pension funds. Eric and Dave, really happy to have you here today. Thank you for, for joining us. Thanks, Sam. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. So let, let's jump right in. I think there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, different questions that I'd like to get through in a, in, a, in a very small amount of time. But just to kick it off, maybe, Eric, I'll, I'll hand it to you first. Could you give us a little bit of an outline as to why are we talking about sovereigns and, and credit? Like what, why is this such an interesting class for these types of investors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's helpful to take a little bit of a step back and and have a think about why we're in the space right now as a result of uh, you know the current credit environment. Um, you know, at, at the fundamentals, uh, credit as an asset class um, has really attractive risk-adjusted, higher-yielding fixed returns, and sovereigns find that particularly attractive. You know, private credit generally has low volatility when compared to public markets and in a rising rate environment like we're in right now. Floating rate credit looks particularly attractive. And so um, we have a number of sovereign wealth funds around the world that have been uh, really piling into the credit space over the past 10 to 15 years. And as a result of that, and probably in connection with it, the asset class has really blown up. And sovereigns have the ability to participate in this asset class through a whole host of different structures, from credit, private credit funds to CLOs, to business development companies, um, and to even direct participation in originated loans. And in addition to that, a lot of the sovereigns have built out in-house credit teams to focus on the asset class. And so I think a combination of all of that um, really lends to the, the space becoming uh a very interesting space from the sovereign perspective. That's great, Eric. And and maybe Dave, if, if we can if we can go on, on on top of that, do you are are you seeing the the sovereign clients uh, you know with with this you know renewed interest and more interest in in, in credit the the way that, that Eric's saying you're seeing different angles to it? No, in fact, over the years we've just seen really strong growth. I mean, look back a few years, um, and there was. You know, acquisitions of portfolios of debt, but we've seen just a real increase of activity into the U.S., whether as an LP or as a as a managed account. Sometimes their own you know direct lending platform. So we, we just see growth and and see it continuing into the future. Yeah, it, it yeah, seems I, like that from all sides. Sorry, Eric, go ahead. I was going to say, I've you know a handful of the clients that I deal with have all doubled their exposure to private credit over the last few years. Um, and I think, you know, one general observation that I have is that as an asset class, it's become more sophisticated with different managers and strategies that makes it that much more attractive to the sovereigns because they have more options about where and how to participate, which arguably makes for better portfolio management. That's interesting. Maybe that's where we should go next. So can can you expand on that a little bit, Eric? Like what, what are some of the, the ways we're seeing the sovereigns invest into credit strategies? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think... One thing to 
uh, keep in the back of the mind is, well, what is, what is the tax kind of aspect of this and why is it an important element of the determination process? And I think when you think about it from a tax perspective, you know, the goal would be to limit the amount of tax being incurred as that would have an impact on the after-tax returns of the strategy. And, uh, you know, the question about how the sovereigns are entering the credit space, um, I think, uh, gets to that question is, you know, how do you manage the tax aspects of the credit investments themselves? And so there's some real tax dynamics at play, withholding tax, ECI, and Section 892 in particular to the sovereign community. And I, I think maybe we could focus on withholding tax and ECI first and maybe come to Section 892 a little bit later. But, you know, if we're focused on the U.S. market and a U.S. borrower, from a non-U.S. investor as the lender, the normal rate of withholding tax for U.S. source interest is 30%, provided it's not eligible for a portfolio interest exemption and no tax treaty applies. Now, portfolio interest exemption can normally apply to loans provided the investor meets some conditions. You know, you've got a lender can't be a 10% shareholder in the borrower. The interest can't be contingent interest. The investor isn't a bank in the business of lending and the loans in registered form. Now, if this is all true, then the tax treatment is pretty good. It's essentially a 0% withholding tax, which is terrific. But if the investor doesn't qualify for portfolio interest, or if those investments are treated as effectively connected income from a US trader business, uh, essentially origination of the loan, then the tax treatment is way worse. And now we're in a, a much different position. Then the investor is treated as potentially being engaged in a U.S. trader business by way of this participation in the loan. The loan interest could be treated as ECI and subject to ordinary income tax rates of 21%. And while this sounds like a potential tax arbitrage, the non-U.S. investor would likely be subject to a 30% branch profits tax on the deemed branch profits connected to that U.S. business, which in this case is the loan. And then the tax rate goes from 21% to 44.7%. And so that's a, a much different uh, scenario and obviously much worse off from a tax perspective. So I think the challenge is providing a structure that ensures that the non-U.S. investor doesn't go from participating in a tax-free strategy to a highly taxable strategy. That's really, that's a great laying out of the, of of the landscape, if you will. So so, Dave, as we see how important it is to structure for these sovereign investors, do we see the the GPs, you know, really bending over backwards to make this happen? Uh, you know, in the credit managers, or do we see the sovereigns in, in the market able to, you know, kind of dictate terms, or or the GPs, you know, doing what they need to 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 optimize this in all cases? Yeah. I was going to say yes until you said in all cases. <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly not in all cases. Not not all GPs are are the same, and not all investors are the same. So the more sophisticated GPs anticipate and understand, you know, the the special nuanced uh, needs of the different types of investors. And again, not all investors are the same in that um, some do qualify in different treaty jurisdictions. Provides a little more flexibility, and and some. Some don't, so they have to rely on you know code-based uh, exemptions and structural relief. So, uh, yeah. So, so, but we we are seeing as the credit market becomes better known, we are seeing um, more accommodation, better understanding of of the needs of the investors. But certainly, it requires the involvement of you know of, of folks such as yourself, Sam, and 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 Eric, 
um, because you know the devil's in the detail as ever. So um, some general general uh, understanding and acknowledgement, but but still we are seeing some nuanced uh, uh, requirements, right, to, to get to where the investors need to be for to eliminate the tax drag that Aaron or Eric spoke about. No, yeah. and 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 speaking of those nuanced requirements, I, I think one one of the things that's a, a real mystery to people that work outside this space is something you mentioned, Eric, which is Section Eight Ninety Two, um, and, and it might be worth you know digging into that just a little bit more. Do you mind maybe explaining to people that are less familiar with it what 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 that is and what some of the concerns, particularly in the credit space, are around it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Section 892 is like one of the most nebulous areas, uh, I think, of of the credit navigation and kind of the structuring considerations for sovereigns. The the concern from the sovereign's perspective is that as a foreign sovereign, they can qualify for the the exemption under Section 892. But a condition of that is that they can't be engaged in uh, what is known as commercial activity and they can't incur directly commercial activity income, which can break break their Section 892 status. Uh, Section 892 provides that sovereign tax exemption from dividend and interest withholding tax, which is hugely valuable, as well as certain real estate gains taxable under FERPTA. And Section 892 is an area that sovereigns manage really, really carefully. And then private credit has so many traps for the unwary that they're they're constantly thinking about this and trying to ensure that they're not causing issues from an 892 perspective. In general, for a sovereign to qualify for Section 892, um, it, it's a really broad exemption. It even includes contingent interest, so it's it's hugely valuable to them, and it, it's broader than the portfolio interest exemption. Uh, but the commercial activity restrictions. Um, are really hard to navigate, and lending is generally seen as a commercial activity itself. So I think when you start to think about, well, how does a sovereign address this? Um, they, you really have to know, well, what are the things that are going to cause issues to them when it comes to credit investments? And it it relates to how they are operating in the market with respect to lending opportunities or credit investments. And the areas that are really problematic are. Um, related to, are you seen as regularly making loans to third parties? Are you negotiating or underwriting the terms and conditions of the loans? Are you operating in the market as a lender? Are you maintaining customer relationships? Do you invest in the loans at issuance to generate origination fee income and subsequently sell the loans, therefore providing something akin to like standing capital? And then, you know, you might say, okay, well, those are a whole host of different restrictions. Well, how do we participate in this on the safe side and you know maintain the 892 exemption? And some of the bright line guidelines are, well, you can invest in loans and credit instruments um, provided you're not involved in the underwriting of the opportunity. So you essentially give it to a third party to make those decisions on your behalf. Or you could buy old and cold, you know, not newly issued uh, credit instruments out in the market. Or you can find things that are traded on the secondary market so you've got these areas off to one side, which are like, okay, well, here's how you can participate. And you've got a whole host of things off to the other side of, well, what's problematic and what'll cause an 892 issue. And there's uh, a lot of friction in between the two, because maybe the best returns are where you're actually acting as the originator, or maybe from an investor perspective, you want the ability to be 
having those underwriting decisions or determining, you know, the credit that you're investing in. So I think when you look at the 892 investor and you, you're trying to help them participate in loan origination, uh, they need to be doing it through uh, a blocker entity, essentially a tax exempt uh, corporate vehicle um, located in a, a low or no tax neutral tax neutral jurisdiction. And the, the problem with that is that, that that blocker entity is unlikely to be eligible for the Section 892 exemption, either because it's organized outside of the home jurisdiction of the sovereign or because the blocker itself is engaging in commercial activity directly through the loan origination. So uh, not, I, not to know, mention, uh, I was going to say not to mention other issues when we're using a, you know, a, a lower no tax jurisdiction, you know, right. A, a, a TAD three, if we're, we're lending it yeah. into Europe and, you know, um, you know, uh, the, the entire MLI, you know, BEPS issues that, that arise as well, presumably. Yeah, and you've got you know ESR implications for certain yeah. jurisdictions as well, economic substance regulations. So, so I, you know, I really I think that I, using. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I think using a blocker can be okay if portfolio interest exemption applies, but if if that sovereign needs Section eight ninety two to get withholding tax release relief, then they may be limited in, for example, how many loans they can participate in. Um, which could be an, an annual determination or maybe in, in total. And that has to do with some of the peculiarity of the 892 uh, rules and some of the case law around it. But you know, essentially the complexity lies in the determination of whether the investments and the loans are made by a banking, financing, or similar business uh, and whether they're considered to be commercial activities. And there's a lot of practitioners that believe uh, a single loan origination isn't going to give rise to uh, a U.S. trader business and accordingly not being treated as a commercial activity. But if you're looking at doing multiple loans uh, over a period of time, then you might arrive at a different conclusion. And for this reason, you just see a lot of uh, interesting issues and structures that come up uh, for sovereigns to participate in the space. Sam, I would, I would just add to what what Eric said there, Eric started out saying this, look, 892 is broad, but I would say it is, but it's also complex and it's fragile, right? So we went through some of the complexities and if you trip over some of the complexities, depending on your structure, it could, it can, in, in, you know, take away that privilege for, for a large part of your portfolio or your entire portfolio. The, the challenge that, that you have the rules, but what, what I see at the organizations is that, you know, taking those rules and making them understood by the business people, right? Because there is, the front office, the deal folks are finding these, these investment opportunities. They need to understand all of these complex rules that Eric did a good job of boiling down, but they need to be boiled down even more so the deal people know what's onsides and offsides. And how, how, do, how does the tax group you know, make sure that the deal folks can follow those rules and, and that they're, they're, um, they can execute against them right, and operationalize those rules? Yeah. And, and are we finding that, that uh, the sovereigns have a, a respect for how complicated this this tax environment could be in credit as opposed to other asset classes, Dave. Yeah. So again, not all not all organizations are the same, but I'd say the the, the larger, more sophisticated ones, yes. In the tax group, yes. In the legal group, probably. In the deal team, sometimes not as much. Right. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. yeah. Now, Eric, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that there's a lot of advisors that are really well um, 
educated in the space and, you know, deal with it on a daily basis. And uh, when you distill that down to the deal team, I think it becomes, it's, it's seen as creating a lot of friction because it's, it's putting some gates up between them doing the, the business that they've been hired for. Um, and it's, it's all because, you know, it creates these, these tax tensions either because it becomes on an after tax basis uh, an expensive area to operate in, or it creates institutional level risk. And if you look at uh, a sovereign with um, a very broad portfolio that just doesn't focus on uh, private debt, but has you know a lot of uh, liquid investments in in U.S. equities, where it's benefiting from um, dividend relief on U.S. source dividends, uh, then you don't want to be doing things that jeopardize the broader Section 892 exemption because there may be all host of tax at risk that's far greater than that is that that's at risk in the private credit space. That's a really good point. So we're 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 coming up on time. So maybe uh, to to close out, so just to hear from each of you, if you were talking to one of those deal team guys that doesn't really have the background in tax, and you need to 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 you know you have thirty seconds in an elevator with him, kind of thing. What's the what's the 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 you know, the one point that you'd want to leave with him that, uh, or, or, or her that's, hey, here's what's really important that you need to understand about tax and, and, and sovereigns in the credit space. So I'll jump in there. You know, I would say I, I, tax as a general principle is getting better understood as not just an economic draw, but, but also as, you know, potential reputational issue. And that, you know, deal person, be patient with your tax function. They're, they're working their way through all of this. You might read, you know, of a, of a sharp structure that's somewhat dated. It may no longer work. It may have a different risk profile today. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an, of an evolution to get to, a, I think, the acceptable structure, depending on the organization's risk profile and level of sophistication. So hang in there, get the right advisors, and we can get you to, a, you know, an efficient solution, hopefully, right? Because tax is a real number, um, you know, these days. That's great. Yeah, I Eric. absolutely agree. I, I think that, um, you know, Following on what Dave said, I, I think that there's a lot of great solutions out there that advisors are generally familiar with. You've got season sell structures, you have potentially business development companies, you have uh, blocker structures, maybe treaty platforms, and different investors are going to be eligible for different structures. And there may be different opportunities to get into a really good position from a, a tax perspective or a Section 892 perspective. And um, the advisors will be able to help navigate that and manage the expectations of the organization and still provide uh, potentially a lot of upside. That, that's great. That's a, that's a really interesting elevator ride. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, guys, uh, with, with me today were uh, Dave Neuenhaus, Global Lead for Asset Management Tax, and Eric Janowak, Head of the U.S. Tax Desk from Middle East and Deputy Global Lead Sovereign Wealth and Pension Fund Tax. Um, thank you for listening. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about this topic or anything else, please reach out to uh, me, Eric, David, any of your KPMG content. Thanks for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. Be sure to subscribe to the series and visit read.kpmg.us forward slash talking dash asset dash management for more information.